follow along as I read this first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law this morning. As was read in Deuteronomy May we choose life. Your word is not too hard for us. It's not too far from us. May that we, as your children, rooted and grounded in the law of the Lord, standing upon the finished work of the Davidic Son, the prophesied Son to whom we must worship, in Him we stand And our hope is in the life-giving law of the Lord. May the clarity of these two paths that Psalm 1 presents become crystal clear, not just in our intellect this morning, but in the core of our hearts. And that we would reckon with this psalm and all of its force for us. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. As Paul helpfully noted this morning in the the call to worship, you are a worshiper. Every one of you. You always have been. You always will be. For the duration of this life and the entirety of the life to come. You cannot shake it. You cannot turn an on and off switch. Some moments I'll be a worshiper and some moments I won't. You always are. You always will be. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth so that the universe might be a theater for the glory of God. And in this theater, the greatest drama of all time unfolds as the Creator welcomes His own image bearers into worshipful fellowship and communion with the Creator. I mean, what an honor, right? Dinner with the King of Kings at the Tree of Life on the regular, in the cool of the day. What a distinct privilege. What grace. But before long, the story you likely know well. Onto the stage saunters the great Questioner, the serpent, 
who creates doubt about the goodness of God's call to worship. He introduces an alternative option for what the good life could look like. He presents it in such a seductive, attractive manner. Another path is presented. A shiny, glittery, glitzy, flashy new idea called self-worship. His deception works. And the serpent must rejoice, no doubt, that his idolatrous worshiping community of himself and his fallen angels have now gained the crown jewels of God's creation and the enlargement of his worshiping community. Two more for Team Serpent. Even if it means being expelled from the place of true delight in the very presence of God, the snare works. But thankfully, this is not where the story of the Bible ends. The opening chapters of the Bible, though, tell us how the world works, does it not? There are only two paths in life. There always has been, there always will be. We either heed God's call to worship and respond to His Word in faith so that we might be named among the congregation of the righteous. Or we heed the serpent's idolatrous call to worship, to worship ourselves to our own ruin, which leads to being counted among the congregation of the wicked. Either way, because you are a worshiper, you are headed toward one of these eternal worshiping communities. In one of these congregations, brothers and sisters, friends, you will one day stand. Which will it be? Psalm 1 calls you to make a choice. The book of Psalms, the Psalter, as it's referred to, is a book for worship. It's the worship manual for the congregation of the righteous. The Psalter was intended to be the central means of public worship for God's people Israel, as they would assemble to hear the word of the Lord, to offer sacrifices before His presence, and to renew His covenant that He made to them. The Psalms were meticulously assembled over a period of nearly a thousand years, and they represent the prayers and the heart cries of God's children. However, it continues to serve God's people today under the new covenant in both public and private worship. How often have you run to a psalm in your moments of deepest despair? If you know anything about the Bible, that's probably where you found yourself at one point or another. And what hope, what a mirror to the soul that you found there, right? The reformer John Calvin wrote, he said, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. 
Martin Luther wrote concerning how the Psalms speak to the whole of Christian truth. He said, the whole Bible is contained in the Psalms. It is the Bible in miniature. And rather than this ragbag kind of miscellaneous collection of random thoughts, the Psalter is carefully organized into five books, each of these telling and rehearsing Israel's story and reflecting even the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, in their themes and in their emphases. And this is so that God's glory would be magnified among His worshiping community for Israel, for us today. As we consider the very first psalm together this morning, we should understand what this psalm seeks to accomplish for what follows. Well, many have pointed out that Psalm 1 and 2 form the gateway, the the poetic pillars, if you will, visualized here as a, a city gate that we must walk through If we're going to enjoy the exquisite gift of the rest of the Psalter, we must pass through this gateway first. The Psalter contains prayers and praises uh, of praise and thanksgiving and lament, remembrance. There's imprecatory psalms, wisdom psalms, royal kingship psalms, and messianic psalms. But in order to engage with each of those, you must pass through the city gate. These poetic pillars forming the gateway to the Psalter. Some believe Psalm 1 at one point was attached to Psalm 2, creating one cohesive thought. You can even allow your eyes to skim over that second Psalm to perhaps remind yourself of what it entails there. Psalm 1 begins with the blessed individual in verse 1. And it climaxes towards verse 6, where towards the congregation of the righteous. And Psalm, pick, Psalm 2 picks up the theme and keeps enlarging the context of asking, why do the nations rage? And why do they imagine a vain thing and shake their fists against the Lord and His anointed? Psalm 2 then concludes, whereas blessed is the man, Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So, hope at the end of Psalm 2 is in the Davidic king. Kiss the Son, the psalm says. Worship the Son so as to avoid eternal destruction. Psalm 1 and 2 strengthen one another's themes to help ensure that we grasp matters of supreme importance at the beginning of this book. We might also ask, why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? What is it about this first psalm that we really need to wrestle with before we move into the house that is the rest of the book? Why not begin the Psalter with Psalm 23? Why not think about the shepherding care and love of God before we think about the rest of these prayers and hymns? Why not Psalm 103? which reminds us of the expansive nature of God's knowledge and His love for us. And, and no matter where we can go, we cannot escape it. Why not that? Or why not Psalm 150? That says, praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him with harp and lyre and trumpet. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Should we start there? What is it about Psalm 1 
That's a particular focus for us that, that wants to grab us and say, don't miss this. I believe it's because Psalm 1 deals in matters of first importance. Here's the crucial question that I think it's a little oddly arranged. Not how it originally looked. But here's the crucial question. Will you stand? Will you stand among the congregation of the righteous? Or will you perish among the congregation of the wicked? You must answer that question. It is of supreme importance for your life now and for eternity. And to answer that question, how you answer that question depends entirely on this. What will you do with the law of the Lord? What is your relationship, friends, to God's speech, the Scriptures. You're a worshiper. You're heading to one of these destinations. The choice entirely hangs upon what you do with the Bible and the law of the Lord. We'll see this morning as we outline the text before us. We'll see the blessed life of the righteous in verses 1 through 3. We'll then consider the broken life of the wicked in verses 4 and 5. And then synthesizing all that's gone before, presenting the destiny of both of these paths. Let's examine first the blessed life of the righteous. The ESV, which we read here this morning, reads, Blessed is the man. Another translation, the the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, reads, How happy, how happy is the one that avoids the fellowship of the wicked. We see that outlined in verse 1. The blessed, the deeply happy, the righteous one, the blessed one, knows how to steer clear of that which will ruin them. Deeply happy people know what to steer clear of. This depth of happiness is not contingent upon fleeting feelings or emotions that we so often have, but it's steady. It's grounded. It's able to weather the storms of life. Deeply happy people in God, made happy by God. They first steer clear of of three types of people as the text presents. The counsel of the wicked, the counsel being the the instruction, the moral mentoring of the wicked. That idea of wicked means loose or lax. So the laws of God they relate to with a very loose and lax approach, reminding us of the serpent, right? The way of sinners, here the, the pathway, the road, the highway by which this, this counsel's provided of sinners. Sinner being this idea of missing the target. Whereas God presents His call to worship, gives us the goal, the purpose, worshipful fellowship and communion with Him, the sinner says, I'd rather not go that direction. I, I see a different path. 
I'm going to pursue this way, this way. The seat of the scoffers. The seat being that dwelling place, that location, that destination where this council and this road leads us to. Scoffers being those who are dismissive, cynical of spiritual things. They consider the law of the Lord rubbish, foolishness, not even worth a a serious thought. The book of Proverbs refers to each of these individuals in different ways and refers to them all with the same word, fools. These are fools who break God's counsel in attitude and in action. The righteous person does not walk, stand, or sit in their counsel. Now, some have have speculated that the meaning of these three verbs here of walk, stand, and sit involves the actions of a person enticed by the wicked. And that's certainly possible. That there's a sense where there's a, a walking, and then they hear, they, they, they see, and then they, they kind of pause, and they, they reflect, and then they sort of sit down and make themselves home with it. That, that could be. But rather, these verbs describe, I think, the, the, the full range of the human experience, of human interaction in all of life, whether walking, standing, or sitting, which is Pretty much any time that you and I are conscious and not laying down asleep, we're in one of those states. In all of those ways, the totality, this represents the totality of the wickedness and wicked people that are to be avoided. And the deeply happy, blessed man knows how to navigate life away from them. In other words, deeply happy people Steer clear of being saturated by the advice, the pathways, and the destination of fools. They do not make their dwelling place with those that scoff at God and His Word. The happy person can spot the difference and can wisely navigate away from that quicksand. In our day, this may come to us in a variety of ways, but how often... Does it come through our devices, right? So much of what we know and what we do and how we learn and how we engage with the world and and all that we learn about it comes through little screens, does it not? Do we mindlessly allow social media and entertainment and news stories and sports or celebrity gossip or fashion or stock market volatility or depictions of the good life to capture our hearts while God's depiction of the good life fades from our vision? Do we get ourselves worked into a frustrated, cynical mood listening to news outlets? Maybe those news outlets that you even tend to appreciate and resonate with to tell us over and over and over again how bad the world is. And it is. Or perhaps the stories of those who have left the Christian church in recent days. The rise of what's called deconversion stories over the hypocrisy and sinfulness of of Christians and of which there is plenty. 
Perhaps these stories have captivated your attention and, and, and won more than just your sympathy, but it, it results in feeling quite at home with those questions, those serpent-like questions about the core tenets of the Christian faith once for all delivered to the saints. Our always online world can present a, a false reality that breeds the idea that anything I need, I can command. I mean, I've got Google. I've got YouTube for knowledge. So if I need, if I need anything, I'll go there for knowledge. I've got Amazon for stuff, right? And, uh, you know, I've got endless subscriptions to entertainment to just keep me going uh, so that there is no dead time. I don't have to even think of matters of first importance. I've got everything I need. Even the channel by which we engage the world in our always online type of world can, can, and a lot of these common grace gifts, they are. They're not inherently to be equated with the way of the wicked. That's not the point. But the point is we can so easily make ourselves lords and kings to ourselves. I can command my life. We can forget that we are dependent creatures. As Paul writes, for from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. We need God. The righteous are those who resist the roadmap of the wicked. The road that they trod and the destination towards which they are heading. On the contrary, the righteous delights and meditates on the law of the Lord in verse 2. The righteous takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. He steers clear, he or she steers clear of the wicked because even though there is pleasure in sin, in, in sin for a season, and there is, he knows it does not satisfy. It doesn't. It doesn't get the job done. All the sin in the world cannot bring me the joy of the blessed life, the deeply happy life that is envisioned here at the beginning of this psalm. The law of the Lord refers to the first five books of the Bible, but as more revelation was given to Israel and over the thousand-year compilation of the Psalter, the law of the Lord came to envelop all the truth that God perfectly delivers to His people. The Hebrew word here for meditate means to ponder or to give serious thought to something. It, it involves this, this possible implication of, of speaking in low tones about some material. Have you ever done that from time to time? There's a piece of information that you don't want to forget. So you find yourself muttering. Perhaps you don't have time to scribble it down or type it in your phone. So you just mutter it so you don't forget it, right? That's almost the idea there. This, this idea brought a, a memory to mind of a particular exam that I had when I was in seminary, kind of an old-school professor that really wanted us to memorize the content for every single chapter in the New Testament. Now, in case you haven't checked recently, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And as you know, especially in the Gospels, sometimes there's two, three, four, five, six different things that happen in one chapter. 
So I, I remember this particular class because probably the whole second half of the semester leading up to this exam, you could spot who was in the class mumbling around campus as they went over their flashcards so they did not forget, and they prepared for this exam. Now, I have to say that exam did something to take a little bit away from the delighting in the law of the Lord aspect, but it serves as, a, as an illustration. The word of the Lord was on our lips. The content of God's truth was, was as if it was, it was, it was there. In a more positive light, no matter the situation, at home, at work, at a grocery store, at a gym, on vacation, at school, wherever, the righteous person delights in pondering and thinking deeply on God's truth wherever he or she goes. Day and night Just as the verbs walk, stand, and sit represent the fullness of how the wicked exercise their all-of-life foolishness, similarly the phrase day and night captures the all-of-life magnitude of the righteous person's delight and meditation on the law of the Lord. Day and night, the totality of our life, the word is to come to bear on it. Well, the blessed life of the righteous avoids the foolishness or the fellowship of the wicked. It delights and meditates on the Scriptures, which results in a life that flourishes like a fruitful tree. In verse 3, we see the enhancement of the point of, uh, through a familiar metaphor, a tree. The life of the righteous is like a tree that is planted planted by God, presumably by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season and without a single leaf that withers. The prophet Jeremiah borrows from Psalm 1 when he writes of the man who trusts in the Lord. He writes here, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. As many of you know, as David even prayed the last few months uh, of being on a sabbatical, I've involved a lot of days at a library. And I remember on my, my kind of daily or multiple days a week, going to St. Thomas's Divinity School Library and finding street parking and walking a quarter mile or so over to the library. And I'd always pass this particular tree. And I, I started to look at it and think, that is unusually large compared to all the other trees around here. That is an impressive tree. There's probably, I mean, it's probably six feet wide. And I, I finally just asked the librarian one day, I said, uh, it seems like a kind of a special tree out there? Is, it, is there any kind of story about it? And he said, yeah, it, it may actually not be that much older than many of the other trees around here, but it kind of lucked out in terms of where it landed. It's right on top of a stream that, that flows underneath it. And I don't have a great picture here. It's probably quite difficult for you to see. But it's, there's a stream that flows right under here. And this, this tree here, about six feet wide in its girth, 
has just been drinking up the, the water for years and years and years. It is primely positioned to flourish. So as it stands, it's a well-watered, well-nourished tree that pictures, typifies the stable life of the righteous who root themselves in truth. The image reminds us, the image reminds us of Eden in the opening chapters of Genesis that we've already discussed, where God plants trees in the garden where four rivers flow, as we read, creating a fruitful environment for a variety of, of beautiful and flawless trees that Adam and Eve could eat from. And insofar as they listened and obeyed the law of the Lord, they prospered. As Jim Hamilton writes, he says, The poetic effect of Psalm 1-3 suggests that, me, that meditating on the Torah, the law of the Lord, mediates the presence of God so that those who walk with God in the Word experience a renewal in what life would have been like in Eden. What a thought. What a thought. The righteous delight and meditate on Yahweh's law because it is God Himself whose presence they treasure. This is the essence of the glory of worshiping the Lord. He makes His presence known by His grace through His Word for our ultimate delight and joy in Him. The life of the righteous is contrasted by the only other option, the life of the wicked. We see in verses 4 and 5, the broken life of the wicked. The contrast to the beauty of the righteous life is not represented by an equally attractive option, as if the psalmist says, well, we've got the good life over here, and now let's take the same amount of space and just describe the other option, which is quite legitimate over here. No, that's not the way he frames it. The psalmist does not even dignify the path of the wicked with with words. It's as if the psalm wants you to keep looking at the righteous life. Keep looking at at God's path. Life saturated with the law of the Lord. And to see that and then to see anything else and go, ooh, well, it's not that. Whatever I see, alternative paths, it's not the beauty of that. What a stunning contrast. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. We see there a empty, wind-blown existence. My, my mother used, or still does, teach, teaches piano and has taught for over 40 years. And she, she's a coach first and a piano teacher second. <laughs> uh, that's why I could never take piano lessons from her. Uh, she was too intense. She was that coach right in my ear, just coaching, coaching. Mom, I can't do this. But she loves, she loves the process. And one of her favorite go-to phrases when she's trying to help a young student learn how to play a piece 
And sometimes the moments of silence and a peace, there's, there's fear. Oh, I got to keep playing. That, that's, I can't pause there. No, 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 no. She'll say, silence speaks. Silence speaks. I think in Hebrew poetry here, the silence of the description of the wicked speaks. It's meant to teach us something about the empty, wind-blown existence of the wicked. The broken life of the wicked may appear camouflaged from time to time, appearing as if it is a sturdy, well-nourished path or tree, fruitful tree, but it is as weightless and useless as chaff that the wind drives away. As Derek Kidner writes, he says, the figure here is that of winnowing, in which the threshed corn is tossed up for the husks and fragments of straw to blow away, leaving behind only the grain. Chaff is, in such a setting, the ultimate in what is rootless, weightless, and useless. As another commentator simply writes, the wicked are wind-blown impermanence. Nothing. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for glory conveys the idea of weightiness, heaviness, magnanimous force. There's something there. Whether a concept or God Himself, there is a heaviness to consider. Just the opposite. There's no glory here. There's no weightiness. It's just chaff. Weightless. Wind-blown impermanence. The story is told by Marvin Olasky of the life of Horace Greeley, a New York congressman and the founder and editor of the New York Tribune. Greeley was a modern man in every sense, and he had elevated himself from traditional religion, and he strongly believed that humanity was inherently good and had graduated beyond these ideas of inherent sin and that sort of nonsense. He, foolish, or he, he financially supported over 40 communes during the mid-1800s, all of which failed. He was a proponent of free love, and he pined after whatever was new and avant-garde, hoping it would usher in some kind of man-made utopia in society. He ran for president in 1872, and he lost by a landslide to Ulysses S. Grant. And in despair, he reflected at the end of his life, and he concluded that it had all amounted to, in his words, one foolish crusade after another. And in a statement written just before he died, he wrote, I stand naked before my God as the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who have ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who has ever saw the light of day. And yet I take God to witness that I never intended to injure or harm anyone. But his last sentence is haunting. But this is no excuse. Thankfully, he, he may have appeared to turn to the Lord in his final days. But what a waste to know that all the efforts of one's life are weightless and 
wind-blown impermanence in terms of the expending of one's life. Self-worship that departs from delighting in the law of the Lord always leads to emptiness, sadness, and despair. Always. We see in verse 5 the exclusion from God's people. The empty, wind-blown existence of the wicked and the exclusion from the people of God. The wicked will not stand when the Lord judges the hearts of men. Note in verse 2, it is the righteous who refuse to stand with the wicked, but that stand allows them to stand in the congregation of the righteous. One stand in opposition to one thing allows entrance into standing in the true congregation of the righteous. The blessed man, this deeply happy righteous one, he is headed somewhere. They are on the path that leads to the eternal assembly of the saints who worship Jesus the Lamb for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. God's forever worshiping community, His conquering church, they will wash their robes as John writes in Revelation 22, and they will enter the gates of heaven with the right to eat of the tree of life, of which their earthly lives were a picture. Finally, in verse 6, the final verdict, so to speak, is rendered. We hear the final destiny of both paths. The way of the righteous is known to the Lord. Not merely in this intellectual, oh, I'm aware of that sort of manner, but in an intimate way. The Lord's covenant love His covenant presence resides with His people who delight in His law, meditate on it day and night. God knows this, saints. We need not worry. The way of the righteous is known to the Lord. The wicked, on the other hand, simply will perish. The psalm begins with the blessed man and it ends here with the perishing of the wicked. Two stunning options. Two paths, two destinies. When our Savior, who we know as the Davidic King, typified, envisioned at the end of Psalm 2, you better worship Him, this coming King, Because He is the only way to avoid destruction. When this, our Lord wanted to illustrate these two paths in life, He illustrated it in one place through the story of the prodigal son. One son, as you know, remained at home with his father, faithfully serving. While the other plays the fool. He goes all in when it comes to walking in the counsel of the wicked. Standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. He's totally in. Having squandered his father's inheritance, tantamount to just wishing him dead. Give me what I need. 
He runs his life alongside the wicked. But what's amazing about this story is that it doesn't end there. The modern here might have thought, oh yeah, yeah, here we go. Here's one of those Psalm 1 type stories. Here's, here's the way of, of the fool and here's the way of the righteous. The point is, stay near the Father and all will, all will go well. But then, the story takes a different turn. The audience is perhaps thrown for a loop. The fool comes to his senses. He runs home to the Father, seeks repentance, and is met with a welcome party like none other. Whereas the older son, who appears externally to be righteous, is filled with wicked, self-serving motives. And like the father in the parable, Jesus will receive all who come to Him in faith and repentance. If your life resembles the younger son, in the story. Know that Jesus loves to forgive sinners. Sinners that go all in on the path of the wicked. His arm is not short to save those. If that's you this morning, there is no sin that can get you far enough from His sovereign love. But it all depends on what you do with the law of the Lord. It all depends. Do you scorn it, ridicule it, doubt it, ignore it, scoff at it? Or will you repent and instead hear God's call to worship and delight in His law, submit to His way, adopt His mind, If your life more resembles the older son in the story, know that the Father still holds out arms of love. That if you humble yourself and forsake your fake religious pride that despises mercy to the worst of sinners, He will forgive. Perhaps you're a child this morning. And you know how to toe the line at home. And you take a lot of pride in not being the other kids in the classroom. And you have quite the uh, estimation of your own level of obedience. Maybe that's you. Know that the Lord knows. He knows the way of the righteous. You're not hiding anything from Him. He knows your heart. What matters most is loving and meditating on the law of the Lord. Perhaps you're a professional Christian and you've mastered the insider lingo. You know, you've been around church long enough. You like church. Church is like a a thumbs up type of place. You like the structure. You like the tradition, the orderliness, the rhythms, the decent people you interact with. It's serviceable for your life. You like it. But it's a social thing. But sadly, you know you're dead inside. That can happen. It does happen. You can't remember the last time you delighted in some portion of God's truth. 
brother or sister, you can't fool God. So you might as well step into the light, forsake your self-worship and the hypocrisy of it all that so desperately fears the cleansing grace of God. Allow the deeply happy life in God and in His Word to make of you a steady, well-nourished tree. Even if it means great opposition and hardship and trial before you. So before we enter the rest of the Psalter, before we enjoy the exquisite gift of the Psalms, which God's people have been marinating in the Psalms in every era, it's like their home base. If we would enjoy the rest of the Psalter, we must come to terms with the question of Psalm 1. You are a worshiper. You always have been. You always will be. In this life and in the life to come. You are what you love. Psalm 1 displays only two paths in this life. There are no more. We either worship the Son, as Psalm 2 says. We either delight in His Word so that we might stand in the judgment and enjoy the eternal worshiping community of the righteous forever in the presence of God. Or we worship ourselves to our own destruction and we perish alongside the congregation of the wicked. Either way, Because you are a worshiper, you are headed towards one of those destinations, one of those worshiping assemblies. So which is it? Psalm 1 calls you to make a choice. Let's pray. Father, We worship you now because we know that delighting in you is our supreme joy. Lord, it is difficult to navigate away from the counsel of the wicked and the the way of sinners and to allow the, the alternate path that leads to destruction to saturate our thinking. Father, it all depends on how we relate to your revealed truth. Make of us as as an assembly, a tree-like stable people, deeply rooted by your nourishing streams and stable no matter the storms of life. In all that we do, we pray we would prosper. Not necessarily that we get the outcome that we want, but that we would be held fast by your grace. Father, give us hearts of compassion, knowing that we all begin on the path of the wicked. We all begin there. And it is only by your grace and in your mercy and through heaven's King that we can know deliverance. Father, we long to stand in the congregation of the righteous and to worship You, our Lord, for all eternity. I pray for every heart here this morning 
that there would be a holy contemplation of this most critical and crucial question. What path is their life on? And how will they relate to the law of the Lord? I pray that would resonate and just almost sting in a good sense that it would not leave them until Your gracious Spirit causes us to either repent of our sin and return as wayward believers or as lost sinners and see the grace of Christ redeem and restore. As we turn our attention to now celebrating in a small way the restoring of the joy our first parents once knew, dining in worshipful fellowship with the Creator. We, in a small, small way, turn to receiving this gracious gift of the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the eternal feast toward which we are heading in the congregation of the righteous. Be glorified as we remember our Savior together. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.